Hi, Joe. Good morning. How are you? I'm not too bad, thank you. It's uh, it's afternoon over here now. Oh yeah, yeah. What what time is it there? Uh, two o'clock. Okay, so six hours ahead. Yeah. So uh, where are you exactly? Uh, so north of London, uh, quite far north, near Manchester. <coughs> I lived in London for nine months. How did you find it? I found it very well. I. Uh, I spent my second year in London uh, for law school, and uh, I I didn't want to leave. What took you back? <laughs> <laughs> Third year of law school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, what so what what kind of things can we talk about today that 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 you're trying to promote? I, I see that you're doing 30, 30, 30 podcasts in thirty days or something like that. Yeah, it's it's more around the fact that I've got like I've got quite an interesting journey um, of how I got to do what I do today. Um, a lot of it's around resilience, mindset, sleep, and in so many ways, it's about getting that presence out there, and that message out there that people can fail, and that's actually good to fail. Remove the emotion, get the data. I mean, I lost the ability to walk. I've had mental health problems. I've been made redundant, but then on the back of that, I've built businesses and actually decided to be proactive in my life and take ownership when something when something bad happens i'll take ownership and move forward and i kind of feel that's a message that especially in these times of crisis a lot of uh, a lot of growth innovation and creativity comes out of crisis and it's like i'm there like working my clients on the psychology of environments on well-being on organizational cultures and yeah, I find myself in a place where I've got quite a breadth of knowledge and quite, uh, I can go quite deep into quite a lot of subjects. And for me, it's really just about getting the message out there that challenging times like these are the perfect time to put yourself out there, get clarity on your message and actually march forward and start to do something that's going to change the world. Okay, we're, I'm ready for that. I like this message. This is, this is the kind of stuff that I'm into. So we're going to have a great conversation there, Lee. Indeed. Yeah. So um, I'm um, one of my. It's one of the things that I talk about all the time with, uh, you know, the folks that that um, you know I deal with is that you know you can't think small. You know, that's that's a it's not a it's not a good move. It's not a good. Um, you know, think big and. You know, I think what percentage of our um, uh, potential do you think we use? 
<laughs> well, our, for, for starters, our potential is unknowable. And so few people ever chase it. We'll never really know what our potential is. But we're, we're utilising probably 7%, if that. Yeah, I was about five. I was about five. Yeah. All right, let's get going here. You ready? I'm ready. All right, let's go. Okay, um, listen, I'm very delighted to um, have uh, Lee Chambers on the show. Lee comes from us all the way from England. He's uh, north of London, near Manchester. And um, Lee's got a great story to tell. And, um, you know, Sidney Patino, one of our producers, uh, reached out to Lee and he kindly said, hey, listen, you know, absolutely, I'll give my message to those folks in Illinois and throughout the United States about what's going on. And so, Lee, we can't wait to hear your story. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me on today, Joe. It's a pleasure to join you. All right. So, Lee, first of all, tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? And uh, tell us about your family. Yeah, so I grew up in the north of England. And like many people, we, my parents, they were really hard workers. You know, they had blue-collar jobs. They worked to make sure that we, as children, me and my brothers, we always had food on the table. And we always had a roof over our heads. But they always wanted a little bit more for me personally. And they kind of identified when I was young that I had a bit of an enterprise inside and I was doing quite well at school. And they really pushed me to go to university and be the first one in our whole family to do so. So being that kind of wanting to go down that route and my parents really rooting for me to go on and do well in education. I managed to do quite well, but being a young man, like so many of us, you know, quite lazy, quite laid back, didn't really want to put that much effort in because, you know, I was getting the grades, I was doing all right. Um, and I'd, I'd kind of always had like a, a real like interest in statistics and a real interest in, in helping people. So I managed to get to university and that was obviously like a, a big thing. My what did, what did your folks do for a living, Lee? Uh, so my mum has always looked after children. So she's uh, like a nanny, like a nursery worker. Mm-hmm. And my father was an engineer, but he, his job were, he was made redundant. And he then ended up working in local government as a security officer. So again, they, were, they worked those kind of jobs where the, the hours were quite long. The pay wasn't great. They had to make a few transitions for my father, doing diff, pivoting and doing different jobs as the landscape changed. Uh, but what they did instill in me was the reality that you have to work quite hard and put some effort in if you want to, you know, get the better things in life. And if you want to actually build something that's worthwhile, you have to work quite hard. And at one point, my mum was working three different jobs and barely saw her. And yet I kind of understood that that was to ensure that we had an upbringing which was comfortable rather than we were struggling so much. So again, that kind of coloured my own worldview that working hard is important but also made me think that I'd like to create something myself. Like when I had children, give me the flexibility to actually spend time with my children rather than mm-hmm. be at work. So um, I'm interested in that because, you know, I got six kids and um, I'm interested in them having an unbelievable work ethic like, like you have. What kind of habits did your parents instill in you that you remember now to say, or was it just watching them, like watching your mom do all these jobs or watching your dad, you know, 
do his thing with uh, being an engineer and government and all that stuff. What, what made it that you followed in their footsteps? Well, I definitely think it's kind of twofold, isn't it? Because when you're a child, you don't really listen to what your parents say, but you do listen to what they do. <laughs> right. So I like they that. Were out, they were out working hard. And it wasn't so much that they instilled a hard work ethic. Naturally, the communication with me was you won't, things won't just drop into your lap. You will have to go out and work to make things happen. But the fact is, we tend as human beings to follow the messenger before we follow the message. So I was watching them working hard thinking, well, if I'm going to make something of myself, I'm going to have to work hard as well. But I want to be there when I have a family. So that kind of really made me have that kind of almost like a lens in front of my eyes so that when I've made decisions as an adult, it's generally been around making sure that I work hard but I still have that lifestyle around spending time with my children. My children are now five and seven. And before they went to school, I was running a business which allowed me to spend a lot of time with them. And looking back now, I'll never get that time back that, sure. and those memories and the enjoyment of spending time. Because now they've gone to school, you don't see them as much. Right. Yeah, so tell me where you went to university. Yeah, so I went to university in Manchester. So it wasn't actually that far away from home. I was so lazy that for the first year, I was forced to move in, but left the application too late. So I had to stay at home and travel in on the train, <laughs> which just gives you an idea exactly how laid back I was at 18. Right. Um, but in the second year, I moved in, and that was great. Suddenly, I had the autonomy, the decisions, the choices. I joined societies and clubs. I was absolutely loving life, suddenly feeling unleashed from that parental responsibility. Uh, but actually, after six months, I started to struggle a bit. So I was at that point where I was trying to make that adolescent to adult transition. Mm -hmm. I was really struggling to dig deep inside myself and find out who I authentically was as a man. Because my father, he wasn't, he wasn't around much when I was younger. My idea of being, being, a, uh, being a man was working really hard, but not really much else. He'd not shown me how to do simple things like wire a plug, for example. So I wasn't particularly tactile with things. He hadn't actually shown me how to be a father because he was barely there. But more so, I was now looking outside of myself for the answers, looking to society. And over 15 years ago, there wasn't the awareness around male communication, around masculinity that there is today. There simply wasn't the forums, the places to speak, the hotlines. And I was like, society's telling me I could be numerous different things. I've not got the emotional intelligence or self-awareness to actually dig deeper beyond the surface of who I am. So I kind of really, I felt like I didn't know where to go. So I actually started to step back away from that naturally caused me some mental health challenges. I started to struggle a bit with my studies. I was doing a presentation in front of 300 students and halfway through, I choked and froze in front of everyone. And that made me feel rather small at the time because a partner stepped in and finished off that bit of the presentation, but that really rocked my foundations a little bit, my own identity of who I was and I actually started to isolate myself in my dorm to the point where my parents actually came and took me home. So mm. that was a big, that was the first real big challenge in my life. 
I think one of the big things about modern parenting for me as an older millennial was that this idea of comfortable parenting where we don't really let you fail badly because that's that's nice that's a good upbringing but then you go out into the world as an adult and you fall into a massive hole and you don't really know how to get out of it because you've not had to get out of doors as a child yeah that's you know that's one thing that that um i think we got to get better at is um uh you know one thing that about being an athlete um growing up in you know uh, throughout my life and uh competing um and uh is that you you're going to lose races and you're going to win races and learning repeatedly how to deal with disappointment and then the resilience of pulling yourself out that is some that's a skill like anything else and it's oh. it's a skill that you need to have in life obviously because not everybody's going to do whatever we want to do. So, I mean, it's like a salesman. I mean, the best salesman, uh, salesperson, you know, they knock on a thousand doors, they get 900 no's, but to them, it's an aphrodisiac to the yes. They're, they're, they they want to get to that yes, they, get, they finally get to that yes, and they're like, okay, good. But a lot of people nowadays, they knock on two doors, and then it's over. Yeah, and it's just, we need to look at it in such a, a simple fashion that, every failure gets us a bit closer to our success. I mean, if you look at Edison and his light bulb, how many experiments, not failures, did he have to do to create something that's changed the world beyond measure? And as soon as we start to realize that, actually having that proactive mindset, going out there and failing, failing helps you chisel your character. It helps you build the person that you need to become because life is full of ups and downs. It's like an ECG, like a heartbeat constantly up and down again constantly up and down again you need to be able to bounce back at the bottom because if you've got a flat line you're dead and life's not a flat line you need that uncertainty you need that suffering you need that discomfort to grow you need to go out there and be rejected you need to go out there and completely mess it up because you get you can look back on that detach the emotion it's not you who failed it's the process look right at the process there's data in there to tell you what not to do next time. There's also a bit of data in there that you can use to build from the future. And in every failure, there's a little bit of treasure, just a little bit of something that really is pivotal. Take those little bits of treasure and eventually you'll be able to build something that's incredibly successful. And so let me, let me ask you this. So your parents come pick you up and you, you, you've made this big failure in front of all these hundreds of people and you're dealing with it Tell me how you turn it around. Yeah, so what kind of happened is I had to have some time of reflection to understand and start to almost steep in that fact that, okay, so what actually happened on that stage? Why did I freeze? And actually looked at it, honestly. I, I'd removed that emotion and realized, actually, it's not because I failed, it's because I wasn't prepared. And... The reason why I was struggling and isolating myself wasn't because I was a failure. It was because I didn't have the self-awareness and the skills to dig deep enough. So instead of approaching it, I avoided it. So I was like, if I'm going to make something of myself in life, I need to be able to make sure I'm prepared so I don't freeze on stage again. And when I'm struggling, I need to approach the fear rather than avoid the fear. 
And that was like a breakthrough moment for me at that young age, realizing that actually I'm going to need to go and approach it. I'm going back to university and I'm going to go and graduate. Next time I have an event which is going to put me in a position of pressure, I'm going to prepare. In fact, I'm going to over-prepare and not stand there thinking that I'm just going to be able to rely on, the, rely on things to just go as expected. I'm going to actually prepare in some ways for the worst by over-preparing a little bit and making sure that I've got more behind me rather than thinking I can just wing it and get by on the basics. So I built myself back up. I went to university and managed to graduate. And then I realized if I take ownership over these things, if I sit there as a victim thinking, oh, my head's all over the place. Oh, I messed up on stage. You're not going to go anywhere. You're not going to grow. You're going to become the barrier to your own development. And I said, I'm going to take that away. I'm going to be accountable to myself and I'm going to go back. I'm going to finish. I'm going to own it. I'm going to own this qualification. I'm going to go and do it. Then I'm going to take that forward in my life, that same proactive approach. So I graduate and I get myself onto a graduate scheme on a finance pathway, a national bank here in the UK. And I'm happy with that. I've decided I'm really good with statistics and I like helping people. So I'm going to go into financial advisory. Like that seems like a great idea. This was 2007 when I graduated. Okay, so, <laughs> so we're 13 years ago, and you're going to be a financial advisor. You're going to you're going to help people invest their money and and yep. retire. That sounds like a nice career for a lot of people. Yeah. What happened in, in those 13 years from 2007 till now? Oh well, so we we can we can go straight in there to uh, six months later. So right in the middle of the economic crisis, it just. Oh. Hits. And they're like, okay, so we're going to pay you for all this professional development. Uh, there's no funding, so we can't. So I'm like, what? <laughs> I can't yeah. want to fund that myself. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, what is this? Two weeks later, they made me redundant. So I was like, whoa, I designed this like old path in my head, this journey. And it's like, it's gone. And I had that initial like, this ain't fair. Why has this happened right now? But then again, that's, that switch flicked in my head and was like, okay, so it's the external environment. It's an economic crisis here. That's not my fault. That's not the company's fault. That's just life. It's up and down. This is another down bit. So how can I make it go up again? Well, firstly, I'm going to go and pay for my own qualifications because no one can take them away from me if I've paid for them. I've got ownership. And in fact, I'm going to go and build a business because... No one's going to fire me for my own business. I like that. Now, I like that. So I, I started a couple of businesses. And one of the things that, you know, I, th I think everybody should have a side gig. Don't oh. you? I mean, some, something that is their own, whether, whether it makes money or not. Just, just as far as, um, I don't know, something for, for your own self that, that you can always go to, whether it makes money or not. I don't care whether you – know, are you a, a United fan or a City fan? Um, I, don't support, I don't support neither. <laughs> uh, who, who are you, York? What, what is it? Um, so I actually support the town, the small town where I was born, and they're a little team that no one's heard of. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's better. I like it. What's it called? Bolton. Bolton. I know Bolton. Yay. <laughs> is it Bolton? What's the name of their, their nickname? Wanderers. The Wanderers, they, they were in the Premier League, right? Yeah, not that long ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully they'll get back, you know. So you're, you're a Bolton guy. 
Yeah. So um, anyway, I you know just, just like having a team, you know, having you know something around a team. I don't know what it is, but but something that is their own. I like that. So you decided then that hey, I'm gonna figure out a way so nobody can fire me. I'm gonna create something. I like this. Let's, the story's getting better here, Lee. Yeah. So I was I was starting to put ideas around my head about what what can I do? And at university, I created a business plan for a video game wholesaling business. And I'm, I was like, okay, so I know that I can make the margins on these games and I can move them about. I can make a good amount of money without working so much that I, you know, I, I'll pass out. And I was like, I definitely know I can do this. So I take it to a business advisor. You know, this guy is in his fifties, well-established, you know, he's got a good local reputation. He's run two successful businesses. So I take this plan to him, sit down with him, talk about it. And he says, you know what, Lee? This is a really good plan, you know, solid, watertight, big as a representative. It's not like in dreamland, you know, this would work. And then he kind of said, but not for you. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, and he, he, was, he was like, you know what, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm coming from a place of uh, a place of love, not a place of hatred. But let's just kind of like step back and realize you're, you're young, you're black, Got a bit of an attitude problem. You're a bit disruptive. These guys who are high up in the industry, you're going to be trying to get in there with. They're going to be like, "Who's this young whippersnapper, young disruptor? Get him out of here. We're not going to trust him. We're not going to let him into our circle." And and that kind of at first, I actually thought, you know what? He's right. (laughs) That it, it is good advice. But by the time I'd been made redundant, I'd actually kind of gone through that process to say, wait a minute, do I really need to take advice? I'm definitely not conforming to what society's saying, so I'm going to go and do it. So I set that business up and boom, six figures after the first year, running it from my mum and dad's bedroom. <laughs> wow, nice. And, and, and I also went and got a job at the local government where my dad was working, just so that I could kind of keep, my, keep myself in employment and surrounded by people but also going across different departments learning learning new skills and seeing how to navigate a local government because i've already right. been in that corporate environment but i've always had this like interest that i need to understand how to navigate different industries because there was always going to be a day when i was actually running a company that navigated different industries so i kind of had that forward thinking where if I go and start moving around these different circles, I'm guaranteed to learn something interesting. So I was doing that, I was running the business, and the business, it really took off. So I was then able to buy my first house, and all of a sudden, things were going really, really well. And I started doing qualifications. So I did qualifications in nutrition, soccer coaching, strength coaching, and I was like thinking, I can use these to improve. Hold on a second. You're working at a government job, you get your business, and then you're going to school to get qualifications for soccer, conditioning, all these different things? Yeah, and I was just I was just on it. I was like, this that kind of hard work ethic, but you're working towards something. I was I was literally doing two hours, two hours of business, going to work, doing my qualification stuff in dinner time at work, finishing doing work again, finishing work another hour on qualifications, three more hours on business, going to bed. 
I was like a machine. <laughs> but then when, when, you, when you're 20, 21, you can do that. You're like burning the candle at both ends. <laughs> I couldn't do no, that. No, I like it. I like it. I, and so, so, so you're doing all that stuff. And so the business part, you know, the, the fellow that told you, well, you're young, you're black, you, you, you're not going to, you know, whippersnapper, they're not going to want you around here. So you're, you're basically saying, screw that. I'm going to do it anyway. And it's working. Yeah. And I'm like, in some ways, I was actually fueled by the lie. I will prove you wrong. <laughs> so sometimes that's really powerful motivation. It is. Trust me. That's motivation for me a lot. Yeah. And it, and it basically kept going. So I then decided that, right, I'm going to look at what else I can do. So I started working with unemployed people, building the confidence, finding what job they wanted, and then helping them get to interview and actually stand there in front of other people, telling them how good they were. And I was like, you know what? This is interesting because these people are coming to me quite, quite low down and I'm gradually cranking them up to the point where they can go and stand there and talk. And I was like, you know, this feels good helping people go and get what they want. And that kind of started to make me think, well, I definitely still want to do something that helps people. And then all of a sudden I get this call from a company called Momentum. They're a sports performance agency. So they said, we've seen all your qualifications. We've seen what you're doing. Would you like to come and sign on our books? And I was like, I don't want another full-time job because at this point, my son had just been born. And I was like, I'm doing so many, I'm doing so much stuff. I need to spend some time with my son so I don't want a full-time job. So I went right. on their books and ended up spending time working in soccer with Manchester City, with Everton, who are based in Liverpool. And that, again, was another completely different experience. Opened my eyes to that experimental, cutting-edge science that they use to get elite athletes performing that 0.1% better on a Saturday afternoon. And it was great. It really did start to understand the elements of what you need to become elite. Okay, let's hold back here now. Who were you working with when you were working with these soccer players? Um, so at Everton, the soccer players, at Manchester City, the academy, the youth team. Right. So who was it just you doing that or did a group of people that you worked with? No, so we were a group of people. And I worked for an agency and we got placed in different clubs. Uh -huh. And it was, it was a real amazing experience. And it just, for me, it made me understand what it takes. It's absolute 100% all in if you're an elite athlete at that level. It's, your whole life is scheduled to the dots. <laughs> no, I'm with you on that. I, I, like I said, I, I was a runner. My whole thing, I was locked in. I was going to break four minutes in a mile. Yeah. In fact, um, when I was in London, um, I spent like six or seven months with Herringay Athletic Club. Do you know Herringay? Yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. when, when, when I was there, um, there was uh, – uh, they were the, uh, the English club champions. Yeah. And so when I was training with them, they asked me to go with them to the European club championships cause I, uh, to be a backup. And uh, so – the guys that were on the team were pretty good. I, every Sunday I was running uh, uh, with Seb, Sebastian Coe. Yeah, wow. And talk about a guy. So at the time, he was the world record holder in the hair meters. Yeah. And um, so it was surreal for me to be running these laps. And, uh, and I was basically a pacer. So I would run fast for the first quarter mile and then, mm -hmm. and then they'd take off or whatever. And, and these guys, and then I think – what was the other guy's name? Um, Paul Vett, Cram? 
No, the other guy was the, those are the guys who were on different clubs. There, there was a guy that was the uh, the Catholic that was there too. He was, yeah, I think he, cool. yeah, he won. He was on that team too. Yeah. He, I think he he retired, but there was there were some really good cats on that team, man. I was like. Uh, Steve Harris, who was a 10,000 meter runner. They, they had some really talented guys, but that was a lot of fun. But you're right on this, as far as these athletes go, a lot of, you know, a professional athlete or somebody that's at the highest level, um, obviously a ton of it is physical, right? I mean, because there's a certain base level you have to be physically to be there on that level to get on that pitch and and do the things but the mental part the wow. mental part for me is that if if um a lot of uh folks that compete they have so much anxiety so much worry about failing that they're done before they even the game starts oh yeah so then enter lee chambers who's going to help you get to the point where you're thinking about the positive stuff all the time you're thinking about you know have you ever seen that movie rocky Yep. Oh, he's not seen Rocky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you know the the, the guy that's the, the trainer, the old man. You know, he's building them up all the time, building them up all the time. But you know, the thing is, you have that build up, but you also have to have the preparation, as like you talked about. The preparation is going to be huge. But tell me exactly. I'm very interested in this part. How, tell me how you worked with these elite athletes to to get them to the point where they were could perform the best in front of all the fans. Yeah. So a lot of it's around the psychology of environment but also around mindset. So if you imagine in terms of, you know, physiology, those players are very similar. They're all peak physiological specimens. The sleep, the nutrition, the training, it's all pre-mandated to the point where they couldn't really push the boundary of physicality that much more. So that's why the mindset is so vital. So I kind of started to look, why were a few players elite and lots of players just below that level. I started to look at it from a psychological point of view. And what I kind of realized is every, every one of those players has an innate talent to play soccer. They take that talent and then they put the effort in when they're younger. And all that effort and that talent binds together to create a level of skill. Lots of players across the world have that level of skill, but they don't put another level of effort in to turn it into achievement. The ones that were there have taken that skill and continued to put practice, effort in so that the skills became a level of achievement that took them to an elite level. And there's obviously a good amount of elite people with that level of achievement. Then, taking that achievement, you have to build a mindset. Achievement plus that mindset is what turns you into an elite athlete. And it's starting to help them understand that I was looking at why would a player play better in front of the home fans, go to another stadium and struggle really badly. And it's looking to see what are their beliefs, what's holding them back, what are the environmental stresses, how much are they absorbing? Because really, it's a massive, big situation. It's your inner game. When you're stood on that field, you're playing as part of a team, but it's you. You have to control those emotions, control those feelings in the heat of the moment. And I ended up working with other sports people in sports where it's just you on that tennis court, just you in that boxing ring. And when it's just you, it's even more important. You're going to have a bad time at some point. You're going to take that punch to the face. 
you're going to be facing set point and about to lose. It's about building that resilience and realizing, like you say, that point is gone. That punch has just landed. You have to wipe clean and start again. And the biggest work that I did was with golfers because there is no golfer. The best golfer in the world is going to have really bad rounds, going to face the cut, and going to have a shot that goes absolutely nowhere where they expected it to go. So much so that it's going to affect the next shot if they're in the rough, if they're in the bunker, if they're in the water. And yet they have to walk up to that next shot, visibly seeing that it's not where it should be, and breathe and just say, that's gone. Next shot, start again. And it's almost about blanking your mind. And you've got to utilise the fact that as well that you, you have a level of high arousal state when you're performing in sport. And so many people just tell themselves, oh, I'm feeling a bit anxious now, feeling a bit anxious. And there's a realisation that that high arousal state of negativity, you know, the sweating palms, the feeling, that feeling yeah. before you go out for a big game, it's impossible to calm down and it's also really a bad idea to calm down because when you're performing at an elite level you need to be in a high arousal state you need to be anxious but you don't need to be anxious because that's a negative framing of a high arousal state what's a positive framing of a high arousal state excitement and it's physiologically exactly the same when you're excited you're shaking your hands are sweating Really, it just requires you to tell yourself, I'm excited. And all of a sudden, you'll take that performance, that high arousal state. I almost say, like, if you're telling someone to calm down, what you're telling them to do is go and drive the Indy 500 in a Prius. Because you're taking all your high arousal power and trying to cool yourself down. You don't perform at a high level when you calm. <laughs> No, I'm with you. Yeah, I, 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 I often, you know, um, you know, there's, there's athletes that you see that are so consistent. Yep. So, you know, the, I guess the guy that, that comes to my mind um, is Lionel Messi. Yeah. Um, did, did, he, did, he, did he play for Bolton for a few years? <laughs> maybe maybe when he retires he'll come live by you and, and, and uh, go to Bolton anyway no so um, the guy um, is so consistent road I mean the only one time he can't win is when he plays for his own country but I, I think it's because he's you know he's pulling the semi on his own back yeah. but, um, but uh, how he can finish um i mean the, the one thing that that uh, you know british people understand um a lot more than americans is the beauty of a good football match um it that can be zero zero or one zero and uh americans love scoring they love all this type of stuff but but what a football player can do uh and the, the ability that when they get the ball in the box to finish and have the creativity to finish, I watched Lionel Messi and I, and I, I watch, I still can't believe him and Iniesta and all these guys when the way that they work together is, uh, is amazing to me. And that have worked you know, together is amazing to me. 
And I, I've often wanted to know who his uh, coach is as far as mental, because to keep that high level for, you know, a decade, maybe, you know, 15 years, whatever the number is, because it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's amazing when you actually look that the, these elite players, they have, I mean, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah. He has 16 people on his own payroll who don't work for the club, but work for him. So he's got a personal chef, a life coach, a nutritionist, all his own. They only work with him and they travel around with him. It's, it's nuts. But you see, you know, they have a resilience coach, a mindset coach. They have people constantly embedding this within, within them day after day after day. And you see, they remain consistent because they've built those habits into their life. They live, that, they live so consistently and so many great players have lived just day by day. And that's when they don't become consistent because it's not inbuilt into the life. And it's so vital to have those consistent small habits because they compound over the years. And even as your athletic potential starts to drop a little bit, you're still at the peak of the game. And again, it's about looking at, if you even look at looking into American sports, there's players who are incredibly consistent, you know, hitting over 300 every year. It's just, but they'll be the first ones on that training ground. And they'll be the first ones who are opening up the minds and becoming self-aware and realizing it's all in your head because everyone on that field is as physically strong and fit as me. So the hidden advantage is in here. Right. So tell me, are you, are you working with um, athletes? Um, so no, I actually now have flipped and I now work in industry to create corporate athletes. And that's a big oh, I like this. I like this. So, so now what you're doing, the corporate athletes, this is good. So do you, so you are you still living by Bolton? Um, I now live in Preston, which is about 30 minutes away from that. Okay. So do you work out of your, do you work out of your home or do you, do you have a place you go to or what do you do? Uh, so I have this, I have this office. I have an office at home and I go in to see clients, obviously not so much because of COVID now. Um, but yeah, I travel around and I've started to build this and I've only been building this for a year. I decided I was going to hold off on this particular project until my daughter started school. And I'd had a few challenges in 2014. I lost the ability to walk. So that put my sporting career at that point, ended it. I never really went back into it. And I've had to try and recover my walking ability and I've now managed a disease, which is not particularly great, but that's life, isn't it? And again, my recovery, I decided I was going to take ownership. At first, when I lost the ability to walk, I went from, you know, almost an elite athlete myself to not being able to go to the toilet or shower myself or eat properly in the space of a week. And if you can imagine, the shock was major. Tell me about that, if you don't mind. If you don't mind talking about that. What, what exactly happened to you, Lee? Yeah, so I was, I was 20, I'd just turned 29. I was thinking of all the things that I want to do before I'm 30, like you do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit 30 and I'll be absolutely old and sensible. My son was 18 months old. My wife was six months pregnant with our daughter. And all of a sudden, my wrist started to swell up and locked in place on a Friday. And I was thinking, ah, oh, maybe, I've, maybe I've hit it. Maybe I've fallen over and knocked it or just been on the computer too much. But in the space of a few days, it then affected my knee, my shoulder, and then my other knee to the point I was immobilized. I couldn't move. 
So my mother-in-law drags me off to the hospital and they send me back through to the ward. And what's happened is my immune system has started attacking the connective tissue in my joints, thinking it's an infection. And actually, it's just my body. So I was in agony because my immune system was attacking me, completely confused. And obviously, at first, the, the initial like, shock of it all, because I was used to being independent. <laughs> I, was used, I was playing team sport. I was going when I wanted, wherever I wanted, at any time. And, you know, life was pretty good. I, I had, you know, the house, the car, the business. We bought, you know, me and my wife had just got married gone out to Florida and then cruise around the Caribbean, you know, and to society, life was fine. And I was like lying there, like, whoa, like what's, what's going to happen here? So I went from the shock. I then had the despair and the frustration because I was like, I can't bloody move. I want to go and do stuff. And I'm 29 and like, what's happening? I don't know. And it kind of moved to like grief. I was like, sure. I'm, I'm a man. I'm physical. You know, I'm sporty. I'm athletic. I do stuff and I can't do stuff. And really, I kind of—I I was quite down at that point, naturally. Um, and in so many ways, you get a lot of time to reflect when you can't move anywhere. <laughs> yeah, right. So, <clears throat> so did, is, was it a specific disease or was it just your immune system? Yeah, so it's something called autoimmune arthritis. So it's where your immune system effectively decodes itself and starts attacking things which it shouldn't be attacking. Hmm. Um, and they, they took laws and laws of tests for all different things trying to work out what caused it, whether it was genetic or anything like that. Um, but what kind of happened is in that second week in hospital, laying in this bed, not being able to do anything for myself and getting rather frustrated, something just dawned upon me. And it was like, I started to think, right, I need to try and be more positive because I'm going to need to recover from this. I can't just be wallowing in my own pity. And I know right. you, have to, you have to feel those negative emotions and let them go. You bottle them up, they'll come bite you in the arse later on in your life. Um, and we got like all the all those emotions for a reason. Got to feel them all, right? But you've yeah. got to let that go, and then at some point choose to stop suffering, stop resisting the pain, and decide where you're going to go. Because otherwise, you just leave yourself a victim. So what actually fell into my head was, Lee, you've been on this planet 29 years. Not once have you been grateful for the ability to walk. And it just dropped into my mind and just like blew my mind at that point. I was like. It's true. Like I've taken it for granted. And then I thought I've got, I've got all these people coming, my wife who's pregnant coming after work, helping me shower, got all these people coming, looking after me. I've been grateful for them, all my family and friends. No, I could have been an orphan on the other side of the world, no hospital, no facilities, like stuck somewhere in a ditch. Like why am I being ungrateful? Then I was like, you know, I've grown up at first world in the UK. You know, I've had free education, free healthcare, freedom set up a business, opportunities to work in different industries. That's it. I was like, right, I'm going to make a decision. I'm taking ownership over my recovery. I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to attack it as much as it's attacking me. And I'm going to get back on my feet. And by the time my daughter's walking, I'm going to be walking as well because I'm competitive and she's not going to beat me. I'm not going to have it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so so tell me about that so then you you made that decision and i think that's a that's a huge thing is is that you actually own a situation this isn't something that you asked for you made the decision i'm going to i mean you know i've tried to explain this to, to people the physical side of us 
is um, is mortal, mm-hmm. and that we, you know, we are who we are. I'm Joe. You're Lee, but the spirit, the soul in us, is who defines us, who we are. You know, our thoughts, our feelings, that type of thing. Because you would think about our relationships, like you with your wife and your kids. Um, they're physical beings, sure, et cetera, but, but it's the, the relationship you have with them, the, the ability to inspire, the ability to talk to them. And, you know, um, my, both my parents have passed away, and, and, um, but I still think their spirit lives, right? And so that, that's kind of the thing. The human spirit cannot be contained. Yeah. And you're saying, I, 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 you figured that out. Yeah. And that, that's good. So that's good. So then tell me about that journey. So where have you come since that time? Yeah, so that kind of spiritual awakening almost at that point, kind of just, it just opened me up, made me realize I need to get back on my feet. So I went into walking rehab, did that. I was waking up on those mornings. I was in pain. I was stiff. I could barely move. But I decided I wasn't going to do what I felt. I was going to do what my identity was. And my identity was someone who was back up on his feet a man, a father, running around the garden with his children playing. So that identity was why I woke up every morning. I had a reason. And I wasn't, I realized if I then took the actions, did my physio exercises, pushed myself that bit further outside my comfort zone, I'd feel good rather than starting with feelings first and then not doing it because I didn't feel like it. So I flipped that focus and then I went it through into intensive physio. I was doing a lot of hydrotherapy, you know, walking in the water to burn my weight so I could get my gait right. And then I started to struggle a little bit. I had a few bad days. My vertebrae and my lower back started to fuse together because I wasn't walking properly. So I had to go back in again to physio. But after 11 months, I walked a mile unaided. And I was like, I've, I've, if I can do this, what else can I do? And that really started the process of me thinking, right, I can, if, I can, if I can get back on my feet and get myself into a good place, what else can I do? I can help other people to do a similar thing. But if I'm helping people who don't have chronic illness, then how much energy, how much power can I give them through this? How can I help them build a positive, proactive mindset that allows them to flourish and push on? And in fact, how can I use my, all my qualifications and my experience in sport and different industries, and bring all that together in a package that helps people understand that they need to connect to themselves because again, like you say, our body is literally just a jacket for our soul. And you could switch those jackets and you'd still be you. <laughs> yeah, right. You just look different in the mirror. But in so many ways, it's like I've now built this business over the past year, but it's been probably, you know, four years in, in the principle and idea. Because what I do is I bring together ideas around purpose-driven business and conscious leadership building cultures where people feel like they can flourish, that they're appreciated, that they're valued and they have the autonomy to grow, building that in to help people become corporate athletes, helping them define the sleep, the nutrition and the movement and seeing how that links into habits and mindset, binding them together and showing how interconnected it all is. Because as soon as you try and work on one in isolation, you neglect the others and you don't get the elite level performance if you're not looking at everything as an integrated system and then also bringing in the the well-being ideas into business so actually that health awareness it's about looking after yourself and if you're in a business where they actually care about you you're more likely to go and do the things that you need to do 
to go and sleep at the proper time, to actually, you know, go and cook some proper food. And it's actually looking about all those free circles and bringing them into business, seeing where they're at and seeing how we can get them into a better place. You know, actually building corporate teams that work together rather than being just a group of people with lots of different directions trying to pull together to a company's goal. And for me, that's incredibly fulfilling because you're making change that matters in the world. You're helping businesses define what the purpose is. And you're helping people who are not engaged in healthy behavior to suddenly think, actually, you know what? This isn't just a typical doing a yoga class on a Friday in the fruit bowl in the middle of the office. This is actually speaking to me. I want to take some ownership and become a better person, a stronger person, a fitter person, not just for me, but for my family, for my relationships, for the people in the wider world. And I kind of say to myself, like I, I get up every morning and say, I'm doing this so that when I pass, the world will be healthier and happier. Well, so tell me, um, how's the business going? I mean, it's going well. I mean, it's, obviously it's been running for a year. I ha- went into pre-launch last July and gradually launched in December. I had clients saying, come on, hurry up, like get it going. Really interested in what you're doing. And obviously we've come to March and suddenly COVID hits and the physical delivery elements I've had to scramble to get them online. And what's been interesting is I, I was kind of working quite in quite a small area here in the north of England. And all of a sudden COVID's hit and I'm getting people from North America. I've now got two North American clients because I've brought so much of my stuff online. And it's like, whoa, there's a whole world of people out there to help. And I'd had quite small, a smaller vision, as you originally said. And now I'm like, you know what? I'm walking up to that tree. I'm not going to pick that low-hanging fruit. I'm climbing that tree. I want the high-hanging fruit right at the top where no one else is targeting. Have you gone to Bolton and told them that you're going to help them get to the Premier League again? Yeah, but they've got no money. <laughs> Who cares? This, that's your pro bono side gig, buddy. Yeah. That is, think about that. Think about how many people in Northern England would be if you got those guys back. Are they are they in the level just before? Or are they down two well, levels they're now? Down, they're down two levels now, and they were they were made bankrupt. So <laughs> yeah, they've had, it's been a bit of a difficult time for them. They've lost points because the financials have gone all wrong. Uh, but my pro bono is going into education. Yeah, I get and speak, it. And speaking about my journey and saying the future of work for you is about taking ownership of your own lifelong learning, about looking at what skills are going to be important when automation comes, when biotechnology changes jobs. You're still going to need to learn how to communicate well. You're still going to need to foster that creativity. You're going to have to have the cognitive flexibility to retrain. You're not going to have the same job your whole life. Highly unlikely anyone's going to happen. You're going to need to retrain when automation takes part of your job, but you need to be ready for that. You need to have your brain lightened and you need to have the emotional resilience to realize that the world is constantly changing and it's not just gonna it's not just gonna always be up it's not a straight line it's a zigzag that goes off the graph sometimes because you know life is so unpredictable we're gonna have to get you some gigs in chicago buddy i mean that, that you this is a kind of message that that resonates it resonates with me big time i i i get your message and I mean, there's so much more that I could learn from a guy like you. But so let me ask you that come be a devil's advocate for you. Okay. Because I'll be that 50 something old guy that said, hey, listen, what the hell do you know? Um, 
what gives you, why would I, as a corporate person, hire you rather than somebody else to, to be a, a coach to my employees, my, my leadership staff? Uh, what are you going to add that's special that, compared to other folks? I mean, do you, have, do you have a degree in psychology? Yeah. And then, and do you have a master's degree in psychology? Yep. Do you have a doctorate degree in psychology? No. Okay, so you have a master's in psychology. Okay, so you understand that. What? Tell me, give me your pitch. I, I'm IBM, and I say, listen, we need this guy, some somebody to come in and just really fire up our our corporate team to to work, you know work well together. Why Lee Chambers? Well, Lee Chambers brings something a little bit different because Lee Chambers actually looks at the future. I am looking at 10 years time. What are those problems that you're going to face? I'm preventing those problems by helping you look at those today, looking at the future and bringing it back. We prevent those problems so that when that crisis hits, you're ready. So we're looking at the full stakeholder level, we're starting to see how we can astonish your employees, your clients, your investors. And that all comes from looking at the company culture, ensuring that your employees come in well and leave well, ensuring that the leadership teams, you're conscious, you're hooked into why you're doing what you're doing. You have a motive to come into work and lead people. You make a difference. Your managers actually want to bring the best out of your employees. They don't want to fix things. They want to promote things. They want to bring things forward. And that all comes down to values that are communicated, that are congruent, and that live throughout the organization. And how it will help you align those values. I'll help your employees bind together as teams, not just a group, but actually to become unstoppable and move and march forward. Well, so I'm looking 10 years ahead, and there, there may be an opening at 10 Downing for a guy like uh, Lee Chambers, man. I don't lie enough to be a politician. <laughs> that, that's the best part. You know, so, so the thing is, the, the authenticity. So, you know, um, you know, you hit on something that was pretty interesting. So when, when COVID hit, um, I remember it pretty well because um, – you know, I own uh, a law firm, and uh, then I also own a maintenance business. And um, the maintenance business, uh, we had a lot of work to do because, um, you know, we worked all throughout the country. And um, so everybody had got these uh, FEMA cards, which is, um, is a national card. But, but for our law firm, we are, uh, they were, we were deemed an essential business by the government. So we could stay open and, you know, et cetera. Yeah. So we, for, since March, uh, so March, April, May, June. So we have probably worked harder than we ever have worked. Uh, we, we fit probably two years worth of work into a three month period. Yeah. And it's doing exactly what you said is, so the low hanging fruit is, oh my gosh, we are paralyzed now. Everybody's fearful they go into their cocoons and hide. And your pivot was, why don't I put everything online? I can communicate with people online. I can keep communicate people in Brisbane, Australia, in Seoul, South Korea, in 
New Jersey, everywhere. And that's your, your message resonates everywhere. So why wouldn't you go, go all in and, and, and do this? This is what you're doing, which I think that we've done too, is we basically said we are going to become the thought leaders in our different groups. And every attorney stepped up and they said, listen, I want to I publish. So they published two or three books during this time. They did all these things. And so when's the, when's the book from, from uh, Lee Chambers coming out? November this year. Nice. What's it called? How to Conquer Anything. Oh, I like that. And so uh, where am, I, am I? I'll buy that on Amazon probably? Yep. It'll be on Amazon. That's great. And then uh, Essentialese is your company? Yep. Functional life coaching. I like it. And, and so tell me, are your kids doing well? Yeah, the five and seven. They've just gone back to school part-time and they go to a small village school. So they're all spread out, socially distanced. <laughs> Good. And, and, you know, they're thriving. I'm trying to instill lots of these principles around mindset and ownership in them from a young age, knowing that they're going to go out into a dynamic, agile world that's constantly sure. changing. They need to have that strength. I didn't. I didn't have that preparation. And I'm trying to let them fail and let them pick themselves back up and keep going, keep falling off. Because again, so much so, you have to just have that inner will, that inner fortitude to keep going. Because life is going to give you lemons most of the time. You've got to go make your own lemonade. Yeah, is, is your wife on board with the theory too? She tries her best. I mean, she's a teacher, so she's still trying to, and I'm like, don't teach, ask them questions. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, you know, my, my wife, uh, she basically, um, she, she, she stays at home with our kids. She's a lawyer too, but, but uh, when I try and give her advice, uh, I, I'd, I'd rather receive the advice from her rather than give it just because she's a little more wise than I am. So my advice to you is do more listening than talking, pal. Yeah, always the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. And, and is your uh, seven-year-old a footballer? Um, no, it's actually my five-year-old, my little girl, who's the uh, footballer. Yeah? She's, she's all over it. She's got real natural ability. So she's already playing for the little little league team she is. What, what about seven-year-old? What does he do? He's very much um, uh, patterns and recognition. And he, he loves statistics. He loves reading. He's not really as not really the most physical, but he's really, really uh, switched on. The reading is key, man. I'm telling you that. What's what's? Tell me some good books you've read lately. Um, I've read Growth Mindset. I've read Grit. I've oh, you read, read you read Growth Mindset, huh? Yeah. Oh, here we yeah, go. Yeah, this one. There we go, buddy. <laughs> Wow. So Carol Dweck's getting a little bit of shout out there, buddy. So um, I, like the, I like the history stuff. I read a lot of history books um, as far as like nonfiction. So I read all the Chernoff stuff, which is good. I'm trying to think if I've read any, uh, any good British stuff lately. Um, you know, there, there's one book that I, that I really liked um, by uh, Ken Follett. It was called Eye of the Needle. I don't know if you ever read that book. No, but I'll definitely check it out. Check it out. So it's about it's about D Day, and there's a movie actually called Eye of the Needle as well. But it's about uh, D Day. I love all that stuff, and you know, you know, we, what are we on? Uh, uh, Seventy six years since D Day, yeah, and uh, how our countries came together, and and 
you know, fought off the, you know, the scourge. And so I'm, um, I'm hopeful that we'll, we'll come together again. Yeah. And I, I kind of think that in, in a strange way, the world's come together a little bit to try and fight COVID because it's bigger than our nations and bigger than individual people. And yeah. Yet it, unfortunately, it's, uh, it's, it's been challenging. I mean, communities have come together people are being more compassionate in general and there's definitely a big place for like love and leadership definitely that's a big part of something that i preach um but yeah i mean together as a human race we're stronger that's collaborations the future it is is well hey listen lee thanks so much i i really enjoy the story and i i really like that how you overcame the uh the the illness that you had and uh and how you're really working on that and then you're raising your, your kids right and doing all these great things and then starting your own business. I love that. So my, my favorite things about, um, you know, our countries is you can do that. And in most countries, you couldn't even think about starting your own business. So you'd be grateful for that. I'm, I'm grateful for it. And I really appreciate your time. And hopefully we'll be checking in with you. And then when you're a big hot shot, you'll take our calls. <laughs> no doubt about it you know 10 years i might be in on outside some shiny red door but i'll be telling the truth i'll tell you that <laughs> <laughs> well good and i hope that the bolton wanders their way back into the premier league one day hey uh, you know a lot can happen in 10 years joe <laughs> all right my friend take care now you too now bye-bye bye-bye